Welcome, everybody, to the Rapid Trails podcast. Exciting days are here. We recently put on our Instagram account that millions of people follow, not quite a million <laughs> yet, uh, that we had some exciting guests. And, Garrick, we do have an exciting guest. Exactly. Today. Todd Bolzinger, or Bolsinger. Bolsinger, Bolsinger? Bolsinger. Dad, gummit. I'm sorry, man. Uh, sorry. Executive Director of Church Leadership at the Dupree uh, Center at... Um, Fuller Seminary, that's dupree.org slash church is the URL for that. And uh, I was actually checking it out earlier today, having listened to a recent podcast that Todd did with um, Steve Cuss and started thinking, man, I got to go back to this uh, URL quite often. So that's dupree.org slash church. Definitely check it out. That's a mouthful. Todd, welcome to the Rabbit Trails podcast. We're so thankful you could join us. Yeah, thank you very much. It's really nice to be with you guys. Thanks for having yeah. me. You uh, you took a chance on on uh, talking to two yokels and uh, <laughs> from you Texas live to regret that, but uh, we're we're happy to have you. <laughs> uh, you among among all the other things that you are known for working at the Dupree Center, um, you also wrote a book uh, that has really had a, a great impact on both Garrick and my life uh, that we've used in ministry as well as within our organization here in Europe, um, canoeing the mountains. Uh, which is a fantastic book. And uh, we'd love to talk to you some about that today. Quite a few of mm -hmm. the points that you bring up in that book. Also your latest book, which is on resiliency, if if uh, I have it right. What's no. the name of, of that book? Tempered Resilience. Okay. How leaders uh, are formed in the crucible of change. So little known fact, uh, burnout and resiliency has been our most listened to podcast not on the rabbit trails. So yeah. it seems to be a timely topic. Uh, yeah, so yeah. definitely we want to touch on that. Um, as we get to, uh, the canoeing the mountains though, um, mm -hmm. could you give us a little bit of background to that book? Kind of, you work off of a, uh, an image there. Um, and then, but you also have some background in your own life as to kind of the mm -hmm. story of, of writing that and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the book Canoeing the Mountains comes from um, the story of Lewis and Clark and the Corps of Discovery, um, which is a, you know, like any historical story is fraught with all kinds of problems. Um, but these are very, you know, normal human beings who are men of their era, who had all the attendant issues that sometimes make us nervous about looking at history. The, some of the ways that I feel about the scriptures sometimes, <laughs> you know, an Old Testament professor said that when you look at the people in the Bible, they're not models to emulate, they are mirrors we identify with. Um, yeah. And I would say, except uh, of course, except for Jesus, who is our one model to emulate. And so, but what you realize is what the story of Canoeing the Mountains is really about how they were sent to find a water route that would connect the uh, the the Mississippi River to the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean. And the whole intention, of course, was the giant project of Europe for over 400 years was figuring out how you get resources from the East to Europe. And of course, when you know Columbus stumbles onto America, all they wanted to do was get through the darn thing. It was like a big hunk of land in the middle of the sea route. So for the better part of 300 years, everybody was looking for a water route. That's what they were looking for, including Jefferson, who understood that if they had a water route and if they claimed the water route from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico and then to the Atlantic, they could charge or tariff people. And that would give them... It, the sense of economic vitality this young nation needed. It'd be like owning the internet today, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
Lewis and Clark set out to find this water route that everybody believes is there. They spend 18 months going upstream through the Missouri River. They get to the border of what is now Montana and Idaho. They step over the Lemhi Pass, expecting to find a, a small stream on the other side. They'll take their canoes out of one stream, carry them a half a day, put them in another stream. And after going upstream for 18 months, they now get to go downstream and they would float all the way to the Pacific Ocean. They would take a selfie and send it back to Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> they would become, you know, anointed as the greatest explorers who found the Northwest Passage. And of course, as you know, they stepped over the Lemhi Pass and found the Rocky Mountains. Mm -hmm. And the most interesting part of that whole story for me is the Mandan tribe had told them there are mountains. <laughs> and they thought mountain schmountains were from Virginia. We're great at mountains. <laughs> and what they meant was Appalachian Mountains. So right. a little, little bit like the first time I was in the Texas Hill Country, <laughs> I couldn't find a hill. <laughs> right? It was like, <laughs> like I thought we're gonna travel, we're gonna travel a long way if we're going into the hill country. Hey, I don't see any mountains. <laughs> the first time I was there, I was impressed because I'm from Houston. <laughs> well, there you <laughs> and, go. <laughs> and the tallest thing I had ever seen was an overpass. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's like it's like people in Florida who talk about Space Mountain as being one of their big mountains right yeah and so all of a sudden they're looking at the rocky mountains and they're realizing we can't paddle our way into the future we're gonna how do you canoe over these mountains mm -hmm. and the answer is you can't you got to drop the canoes and what what, mm -hmm. what really is that becomes the metaphor for leadership when the world has changed dramatically right underneath your feet when you are now in uncharted territory when you can't rely on the best practices of the past, but you actually have to adapt as you go. And so it's built on the work of Ronald Heifetz about adaptive leadership. And it's really become the way of talking about leadership needed in a world that is changing so rapidly that you can't depend upon your expertise. Mm -hmm. You can have some experience and maturity and formation, but you're gonna have to learn as you go and navigate losses and make really hard decisions. It was it was almost like, it seems to me that as you were talking, this occurred to me that all of all of their experience in the world and the way that you did things, so a, a, some kind of overland passage or, or rather um, water passage that would go through the whole thing, their experience told them that that should be there because that's just the way things work. And so in some sense, their success set them up to believe that this would be there. Uh, because there exist those things in other countries and other places, but that wasn't there. And they were met with that, that reality, even though someone did tell them, but there's mountains there. They yeah. just didn't, they didn't have the ability to perceive how big those mountains were. Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't perceive the mountains. The other part about it is if you've ever spent any time in that area of the United States, you know, that um, um, <laughs> Meriwether Lewis saw the mountains for three months before he got there. If you're in Western Kansas on a yeah. clear day, you can see the Rocky Mountains. Right. Yeah. yeah. And what he said, he wrote in his journal, I refuse to believe this will be anything but a safe and comfortable passage. Mm -hmm. So not only did he not have the mental capacity to think about the future, he was in denial because our default response to change is to believe that it's actually going to be more of the past. That's mm -hmm. not going to be as disruptive mm -hmm. and we want it to be familiar. And so even today in the middle of the pandemic, you have churches who are spending more time arguing about how quickly we can get back to normal rather than considering the fact that this may be a completely new opportunity to think mm -hmm. about what the future could be like. And that's the, the rub. Mm -hmm. This, this book feels, it feels like a, a 
I don't want to say a love letter, but a letter to the church, particularly America, but in the West of saying, well, it's all changed. Everything's changed or is changing. Um, and I think, you know, Barrett and I, having been guys who grew up in Texas and did campus ministry or saw campus ministry working in places where and maybe it still does work a little bit. You know, you, you, you show up, you, you do what you do. And, and all of a sudden you got 50 people, you know, and that grows to a hundred and, you know, yeah. and there's still some places like that, but uh, you know, as we, when we moved to Europe, we had, I think we both would say we had that experience yeah. uh, of the getting up on the pass and looking out and going, gosh, this is, so, so, so it feels also, this is a very missional book as well, because it's really yeah. trying to push the church into that chart, uncharted territory off, off the map. Um, yeah. I just, yeah it, was, just, you, it was originally part of my way of dealing, of trying to respond to the work of Leslie Newbigin, who basically mm-hmm. said the West is now a mission field, yeah. <laughs> like the resistance yeah. to the gospel that he discovered coming back from India to Great Britain in the 1970s. He said the resistance to the gospel is greater in England than it was in India. Yeah. And that reality you guys know in Europe and you know in lots of places of the world and what's happening in the rest of the Western world is we're acknowledging that we no longer live in this world where Christianity has a home court advantage. And that because of that, people, some people are really angry. We're having all kinds of stuff going on with that. Yeah. But instead of looking at that as a missional opportunity that requires us to change and grow because the gospel is actually um, relevant in every culture and every setting, um, we we lo- we miss the opportunity to continue to change and grow if we keep hearkening back to the past. So do you th- do you feel like the the I mean so from your experience uh, you I mean Christendom's dead in in the sense that you're describing I think you even more or less say that in the book mm-hmm. or not it's not coming back I think is maybe the way you yeah. put it. Yeah. Uh, do you find that that still is a mountain that people are refusing to acknowledge? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. See, it depends on where you are in the country. Like, so um, what Christendom is basically simply, you know, it's simply a way of saying that Christianity has a cultural home court advantage, right? Right. So uh, in the book, I tell the example, I worked at Hollywood Presbyterian Church for 10 years. I was shaped, that's where I was called in the ministry. (laughs) Seems like an oxymoron. (laughs) Well, it does today, right? But it was the largest Presbyterian church in the country in 1963. It had 9,000 members. And it was featured in the LA Times. (laughs) And, And I have an article from the LA Times where the LA Times used to publish a week's worth of daily Bible reading readings. So you could do your morning quiet time with a Bible and the Los Angeles Times. It would tell you what the daily Bible reading was. We think the world was, because it was that way for 1700 years, we think it should be that way forever. And then when we start recognizing that it's not that way, we think we have some kind of God-given mandate to make it that way, rather than to think about actually the mission of God goes into every culture and into every environment to bring redemption. And so what would it be like for us to let go of the Christendom past and step into this future? And what's happened, you know, since COVID is that every church has now been disrupted, every church. So now, so even the argument about whether the world is changing is now an irrelevant argument because now you're having to ask the question about, so what does it mean for us to live in this rapidly disruptive world mm. just a, a quick a quick comment because i, I think mm-hmm. this is interesting but if i'm if i'm not correct i believe campus crusade for christ crew was kind of birthed out of oh a oh. hollywood presbyterian with henry and amirs and that's where bill oh. Vonette went actually so i a, was the so i was the college director i was the college pastor mm-hmm. at hollywood mm-hmm. presbyterian and 
and I taught in the same room that Bill and Bonnette came to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. I know, like like yeah, Henrietta a- Mears. There's a picture of Henrietta Mears. I was her. Yeah. I sat at her desk. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah I just the, think that's a it's a just an interesting connection in yeah. history. Um, yeah. Okay, so so the question is, and when you have people who can't get over this, what you know, we're talking about adaptive leadership, but for our, our for people listening, what what are some first steps? You know, we need to take as leaders to help people begin to see the the reality mm-hmm. in front of them. The really so so from this, can I can I ask a clarifying question, Garrick? Yeah, are sure, you sure. saying uh, so? Let's let's talk in in means of the analogy. Are you saying people are carrying the boat still? They've ditched mm-hmm. the boat and carrying the paddles. Are they? You know, are, are we looking for horses? Where where are where are the people we're trying to convince in this in this particular instance? In, yes. in the analogy, if you put them on the mountain, on the mountain, yeah, they probably still got the boat. Yeah, maybe, I can, maybe they're I can in tell the you boat where, trying to push. I can, it. I can tell you where most people are: is they're sitting in a boat, and there is no water. Yeah, and they're paddling as hard as they can. They're not getting anywhere, and they're getting more and more discouraged. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, that so like just true. think of it this way: like, like I actually think it's so. I, I often use this analogy talking to churches. Your church gets to the top of the Lemhi Pass. You look over. You see that the that the world really is changed. Now you have a choice. What are you going to do? Some churches say, you know what we're really about? We're really actually about canoeing. We're not about discovering. So what we're going to do is we're going to go back, and we're going to uphold the great tradition of canoeing. We're going to tell our we're going to make sure our children know how to canoe. We're going to go in circles. We're going to give tell stories about the great days of canoeing. We're going to try to make canoeing you know great again. And we're going to go backwards. Others say, actually, we're just stuck. We're going to stay right here. We're just like, like we're going to stay right on the spot. It's like somebody joked that the entire city of Denver was founded by people who made their way across the Great Plains, endured every trial, looked up at those mountains and said, nah, we're stopping here. (laughs) And many people are like, we're stopping here. But there are others who said our goal is to actually move forward, is to go into the future that God has called us to. So so what we're about is we're about exploring, not canoeing. We're about discovering a whole new world, not a water route, which means you have to drop the canoes. Mm-hmm. So what this means is a different kind of leadership. It's a leadership that starts with acknowledging that you don't have best practices. You're going to have to learn as you go. And that also acknowledges there's going to be loss. If you came on the trip because you were told it was a boat trip and you're an expert water navigator and you actually built those canoes with your own hands and you're proud of them, and now we're telling you we're going to not only drop them, but we're probably going to have to burn them for firewood Mm -hmm. just to get through the snows of the mountain, it is a huge identity hit. And so for many of us who are leading, we are having to learn to lead all over again. And it starts with literally, as Ronald Heifetz says, it is, it is leadership is disappointing your own people at a rate they can absorb. Mm-hmm. And none of us got into this work. I would say we got into ministry because we love God and we love people and we want to introduce the people we love to the God we love. And we thought it would be a love fest. We didn't think mm-hmm. it would be a mission filled with discipleship, loss, change. I mean, that's what learning is. Learning is discipleship. So it's at a core, it's a part of our core value, but we didn't realize how profoundly we would have to learn, face loss, navigate through hard decisions all the time. Well, and, and kind of an, our American and even typical evangelical kind of, I don't want to say narrative is that we're just going to see growth and success mm-hmm. and, and, and everything's going to be amazing. That tends to be kind of our, uh, I think as, as Americans we tend to be very optimistic and very yeah, uh, yeah. 
uh, yeah, that, that way. Um, so yeah. I think it's, it's, it's even more challenging uh, in that sense. We've been set up for that, that kind of. Yeah. Well, isn't it? Perception. I mean, that's kind of what I mean that their success of navigating rivers in the past and seeing mm-hmm. places where there were navigable rivers that went where they needed them to go, yeah. set them up to believe that all it would always be so. So you naturally have in that situation, I, I've often said, even in the context of, of crew, uh, but I say it a lot here in Sweden, um, our best successes have become our greatest hindrances yes. because so often we just go, well, it's working over here. And we start going, well, it's working in the Philippines. Uh, well, the Philippines have rivers, but we don't have rivers here. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. We got to stop paddling. And, and it's, you, you know, you mentioned they find themselves in a place where there is no water. Um, mm-hmm. oftentimes it seems like there's the temptation as a leader, uh, and maybe I, I would love to hear you speak into this if it's, if it's true or not, but I, it, it's easy to go. We just need to, we just need to paddle harder. Oh we'll, yeah. We, we, it'll, it'll work. Or we just need to carry the boat for a while because the rain will come. And when mm-hmm. the rain comes, we'll be able to, we'll be able yeah. to, you know, uh, you know, when God opens the floodgates and we see yep, a big yep. revival and it's kind of like, look, we're, we're off the map now. Uh, it's not going to work that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so um, one of the people that I refer to a lot in the book is Ed Friedman. He was a Jewish yeah. rabbi who was a marriage and family therapist who used Bowenium family systems theory to apply to a churches and congregations. He spent a lot of time as a rabbi speaking to Christian churches. He was actually really interesting and he consulted a lot in Washington, DC. So think, you know, synagogue, religious community, family system, government system. He saw dysfunction at every level. So he was really an expert. And one of the statements he makes is when any relationship system, so that's the first thought, we are relationship system primarily. We are here and connected to each other out of relationships. That's the fuel. That's the, I mean, as Christians, we believe that we become baptized and become brothers and sisters. It's a relationship system. When any relationship system becomes imaginatively gridlocked, and that's just a phrase I think about a lot. Gosh, I think about, you know, I ask really? every leader, like, when was the last time you were in, in, a, in, a, in a meeting that was imaginatively gridlocked? And the answer I usually get is, I can't remember the last time I was in one that wasn't. <laughs> like, like, we're just stuck. Yeah. He said, you cannot get through, get through it through more thinking about the problem. Conceptually stuck systems cannot be unstuck by trying harder. And for many of us, this is like the worst bad news because Mm -hmm. what we think is we will outwork this thing. We will, we will be dedicated. We will, we will pray. We will work. We will labor. We will sacrifice. We will outwork this thing. And the hard news is it is like paddling when there's no water, you will exhaust yourself before you will do it because what you have to do is actually make a huge shift which is an identity shift, which is to rethink that you're actually not about a water route. You're actually about a whole different, deeper, more important journey that requires you to lose the canoes mm. and keep going and keep going and learn as you go. And, and having to do stuff like the most powerful part of the whole story for Lewis and Clark for me was when they stepped over the Lemhi Pass, they were lost. I mean, really lost. Somebody said um, Neil Armstrong knew more about the moon than they knew about the American West (laughs) because Neil Armstrong had seen pictures of the moon. But one person wasn't lost. She was a teenage Native American nursing Mm -hmm. mother. Mm -hmm. In 11th grade history class, we learned her name is Sacagawea. It was probably Sacagawea. And I just want to give her back her name because she became critical 
because what these two men, men of their era, one of them had been tutored personally by Thomas Jefferson, had to learn to do was to listen to her. Mm. And that they hum- is they humbled themselves. Oh my gosh. They yeah. up until that moment they had ne- not written down a single word that she had said. They didn't think she was anything but a translator. And and she's remarkable. Like every single time I think about the core discovery and these burly mountain men who, you know, faced down grizzly bears and ran rivers and went over mountains. You gotta remember she did it too while nursing a baby. <laughs> so so here's yeah. here's an interesting so part of that what she's not trained in enlightenment values. She doesn't hold democracy very high. She probably doesn't believe in the triune God. Um I was having a discussion. I think it was today with someone talking about just data and how we need to be looking at data to learn new things and different things. And I said, you know, it's interesting. I think we need to stop talking to data from our own organization or looking at data from our own organization and start looking at it from outside our organization, because I think that's, that's where the answers lie. And I've done more learning in Sweden. I mean, when you describe the, the, the canoeing, you described my first 10 years in Sweden. I mean, mm. <laughs> it was, I was just trying harder and I thought I could outthink it. And I yeah. realized at some point, I don't know when the evolution was, but at some point, okay, I'm not going to be able to think myself out of this problem. Now, yeah. I don't know that I've, I'm doing much better, but so that brings the next question. What, what, when you can't think yourself out of the problem, what should you be doing at that point? Yeah. Yeah. So there's two things you do at this point. And if you just think about this, is this happens from the Lewis and Clark story. One is you actually start listening more you st- mm-hmm. and you start listening to people who are in the area. You start um, D- Dave Gibbons, who is an Asian American pastor who started a multicultural congregation 20 years ago in very white Orange County, California, said the future is here, but it's on the margins. So those of us who are in the center of the system, the organization, the culture have to recognize that if we're not listening to the people who right now we have marginalized, we think they're not as important, then we are missing it because that's actually where the future is. So when you go into another environment and you start listening to people, you start actually learning from them and listening to them, that actually not only teaches you, but it also attunes you to them and develops your capacity to start thinking about how the gospel relates to these folks. Mm -hmm. So there's a kind of, so I would say you increase the amount of diversity of the voices. You start listening and learning more and you start experimenting, <laughs> like you do experiments. You um, adaptive change happens through what I call what what Silicon Valley calls prototypes. I would say, don't predict the future. Prototype. Do small experiments about what you can learn. Don't ask the question, "Did it work?" Ask the question, "What did we learn?" Mm-hmm. And pretty soon, after a while, you start realizing that by learning you can say, well, this thing worked, so we're going to try it again. This thing worked, we're going to try it again. This thing didn't work, we're going to let that thing go. You start take on a different way toward moving into a culture, into a world, into a way of being. One of the things I, I love about this book in, in comparison often to a lot of other leadership materials, you know, leadership materials, a lot of the times they say, here's what you do, you got to do. And what, what your yeah. book is much more pastoral, much more, Realistic. It's obviously, you know, touching into the, the role of a leader, as you know, Edmund, Edwin Freeman would say, uh, a non-anxious presence, and being yeah. the person who, who really guides, not because that they're really good at something, because they're able to, um, 
to just move things forward and, and be with people and process all that with them. Um, you know, we're in a, we're in a big organization and crew. And, and so that's, that's a tr- tricky situation because changes need to happen. So how, so that's the thing, because you said part of being a leader is, is disappointing people. Yeah. But how do you, how do you balance the the disappointment, but also not lose people? How do you make yeah. sure? Yeah. Cause you, you, you don't want to, you know, you can get there, but if you don't have the people with you, you yeah. it's not the same yeah. thing. So how, 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 how do we do that? Yeah. So, so one of the first parts, and this is actually, this was actually what led into this writing of the second book, right? So I spent, I mean, the, um, I wrote Canoeing the Mountains in 2013 and 2014. So it came out in 2015. So just remember that when you think about the context of where mm-hmm. we were as a country in 2013, mm-hmm. yeah. 14, 15, and how yeah. radically things began to change in 2016, right? And began yeah. uh, uh, that sense of disruption. But for I five years- we're year, talking about that today. Yeah, 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 exactly. It's and so to think about the disruption and what that's meant on lots of levels, right? Then you start thinking about the fact that when I would go around the country and talk to people, whoever would invite me to talk and do training, I would have this very common thing would happen is that I would finish my presentation, somebody would take me to lunch, and usually it's the person who invited me, and they would say, Thank you very much. We'd like to get your slides and appreciate that, and we're gonna get your book. But you know what? And I would get to hear this <sighs> this deep sigh, and they would say, I don't know if we have anybody who can do that. Mm. And I would think, oh, well, oh my gosh, I got to do a better job of training. They went, no, 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 no. I don't think we have anybody who can actually has the stomach for that, who can actually disappoint people, who can actually stay in the middle of the conflict, who can put up with sabotage. Like there's a chapter in the book on sabotage. Every single group I ever spoke to wanted to make sure I touched on sabotage, every Mm -hmm. group. Mm. And so the book on tempered resilience was really a book about what is the formation needed in a leader in real time while they are leading to be able to lead through the combination of external challenges and internal resistance because the most difficult part is not the external challenges it is when you finally get the gumption up with a group of people to take on those external challenges like we feel called to share the gospel on this campus or in this country or in this place and then as soon as you start getting resistance, people start wanting to go back. Mm-hmm. It's the internal resistance. It's the sabotage. It's the, it's Israelites getting to the other side of the Red Sea, seeing the greatest <laughs> miracle yeah. in human history until the resurrection. And then six weeks later, six weeks, six weeks yeah. later, they say, yeah, no, they killed our children, but we had leeks and onions. Yeah. I think I think that's one of the greatest parts of the Bible. One, it shows how a stomach can 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 determine someone's attitude, but also just I, I, it reminds me of myself to be honest. Because oh. for a for a plate of food, I'll sell my birthright. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. leeks and right. onions. I, they must have been really good leeks, though. Right, right. Like, <laughs> like, I mean, and what's amazing about it is so so you know Moses at that moment he actually holds firm. He actually yeah. and God you know, delivers manna and stuff. Well, then you get to numbers 11 and they're complaining again. Now they're complaining that God is doing a miracle every day, (laughs) but they're getting bored with the miracle. Right. So what you see is how profoundly discouraging. This is the thing I learned is for most leaders, the most soul sucking thing is the resistance of their own people. The very people who called you to lead change, the very people who want you to be part of it. The people who said they signed up to be with you are the people who say, I want to go back. And that is normal, Ed Friedman teaches us. That's normal for humans. Mm-hmm. 
it's to be expected that I would say sabotage is not the bad things that evil people do. It is the human things that anxious people do. And mm. learning to lead through that is a formational task mm. as well as a, a, a leadership maturity task that is really, really necessary today. So, so how do you how do you think you build that then the resiliency necessary um, for mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons? I, one, I, I mean, I ask, look, I'm a leader. It's it's good to know those things. Um, so, but but also, I would say there's also those certain people out there. So Moses was called for a reason, uh, mm-hmm. not just because God chose to give him his grace. I think he had some natural abilities that were there and other things, but. There's a reality that so particularly for adaptive leadership and change that needs to be seen, there are going to be those people who see uh, see what needs to happen. They can they can see the possibilities, but they also see, look, we're not finding a river through this thing probably quicker than other people. But that's an incredibly lonely place. So not only it's not just every leader needs a stomach, but there's also a certain amount of people that they're always going to feel on the outside of that. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you build resiliency on, on both mm-hmm. those levels for the everyday leader, but also for the leader who yeah, uh, yeah. maybe scores high on a VUCA test or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. So um, in temporal resilience, I, I mean, the word, we're, we're having this conversation the day after Martin Luther King Jr. Day in the United States mm-hmm. and um, temporal resilience is built on the metaphor that comes out of his, I have a dream speech, this one little little line where after, you know, he, when he starts the, I have a dream speech, it's not the, I have a dream speech, right? He actually, that part of the speech was extemporaneous. He did not plan it. He mm-hmm. had a different speech planned and that different speech wasn't working and he was a good preacher. So he saw 250,000 people are not responding to this the way they should. Yeah. And he pauses and Mahalia Jackson, who's a gospel singer, who's on the stage with him says, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And so he goes into the eye of a dream, which is basically where he starts on Isaiah 40. And he says, this is the picture of the world that's mm-hmm. going to be. Someday the mountains are going to be made a plain, the rough place is smooth, and a river is going to run through it. And he goes, with this faith, I go back to the south. Just think about that line. I go mm-hmm. back to the south. These are 250,000 people. Many of them had come from the south. And the south meant jails and dogs and hoses and, you know, yeah. lynchings. I go back to the South because God is going to change the world. I will go back to work. And then he says, with this faith, we'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope. Mm. And that became for me, the metaphor hew, not blast with dynamite, not bludgeon or break apart with a sledgehammer, not cower and go away, but hew. Cause then he goes on and he uses parallelism. We'll be able to hew out of a mountain of despair, stones of hope, with this faith, we'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. And it mm. is that parallelism of hewing and transforming, of taking a mountain of despair and turning into stones of hope. Like I just think like the living stones of First Peter, right? Because of this, with, mm-hmm. with this faith, we'll be able to do this, that transformation is really the key. And for me as a leader, that became, I began asking the question, so what kind of tool can hew out of granite despair, stones of hope? And it's a chisel, it's a tempered tool, a tool that is both stronger and more flexible than the raw material. And that's the process leaders have to go through. It is a process of becoming stronger and wiser, stronger and more flexible, stronger and more adaptable. 
that is a, lo a long process. And mm -hmm. the book uses a blacksmithing metaphor. I went, I took a blacksmithing class in Los Angeles and uh -huh. some stuff like that. Who, who hasn't? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I took a blacksmithing class from a place where there hasn't been a horse there in a hundred years, but there's an urban blacksmithing community in Los wow. Angeles. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, so what is it then? So the, the temperedness that you're talking about, obviously yeah. when you're tempering steel, there's the, mm. the back and forth of heat yeah. and cold and hammering mm. And it's not a, it's not a uh, comfortable picture. Mm -mm, mm -mm. So resilience then is created through a long yeah. process of difficulty or? Well, it's difficulty. So uh, the first thing I say is it's, you know, it, this is a reminder that leaders are only formed in the leading. Like, mm -hmm. like you can't form a steel tool with a paper <laughs> or talking about, like you have to actually, the steel has to go into the fire, right? And mm -hmm. so if we are the, if our raw material of ourselves is shaped, the first thing that happens is it goes into the fire. And most of us think the leadership is, the leadership challenges are hot, not, are hot, right? You can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen, Harry Truman said. Right. My experience has been that actually it needs to be a lot hotter and the mm -hmm. heat is the heat of self-reflection a vulnerable self-reflection. I mean, I guess if we just sat down and talked about it, Barrett, there was probably a moment after those 10 years where you thought, I am failing at this. Yep. And it's only at that moment when you allow yourself to experience that vulnerability that you now can be open to the shaping that God has to do in your life. Yeah. And so for most resilient leaders, it is acknowledging the heat of really vulnerable self-reflection and your capacity to do that which we see in the scriptures, we see it in Moses, we see it in Dr. Martin Luther King. There's a, a passage I read in the book where he literally comes on his knees before God and says, is there anybody else you could use? If I could get out of this without being called a coward, I would. Mm. And that's where God meets him. And right. that, so it starts in that reflection. That's the fire. And it requires relationships. That's the anvil. Like we can talk the whole time about the kind of relationships leaders need to hold them when they are vulnerable. And it's most leaders are way too alone and way too, yeah. uh, too many solo pastors are way too solo. So, so yeah. So what are, what are those really, what do those relationships look like? Yeah. I talk about um, three types you have to have, you need to have partners, Lewis mm -hmm. and Clark, right? Those are people who share the mission with you. You need to have friends. You need to care. You need to have people who care more about you than they care about the mission. I need people in my life who care about me even more than my mission. I need people who say, hey, Todd, congratulations. I heard you got a new book out. I go, yeah, I do. You want to read it? And they go, no. I'm just glad for you. Glad for you, pal. Yeah. This is what God gave his children for. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. And that's what like you need. So you need partners who share your mission and you need yeah. friends who are committed to you. And then you need mentors who are committed to your development for the sake of your mission. They stand in the middle. And those mentors are, for me, they are therapists and spiritual directors and coaches. It's, it's, it's what I do now. I coach and walk with people through that, that mentoring relationship. And, and I just believe that every leader needs all three of those. You mm -hmm. need partners, even if you're in charge, you're the president, the CEO, the whatever, you need partners who are just as committed to the mission as you are. You need friends who care deeply about you even more than the mission and you need mentors and you need coaches. I would say if, if LeBron James needs a coach, you need a coach. Yeah. And I just think it is leadership malpractice to try to lead without having somebody that you come to, to say, um, I want to know where God is in this. I want to know how I'm doing in this. I want to know what I should do in this. So, 
you need all three of those. And that's like an anvil holding you in your vulnerability that is really, really mm. necessary. So, you know, we, we mentioned, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, the, you know, obviously we're, 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 we're definitely more off, off the map than we've ever been. Mm -hmm. No, we, we're dealing mm. with secularization. We're dealing with, uh, you know, the challenges of that, but then, you know, throw March, 2020 in the, in the thing. And now we're, we're in a pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and, and I, we have a friend, uh, Paul Duncan, who, who he was teaching a thing about leadership and someone asked about the pandemic. He goes, no one knows what to do. Like there's no, there's no guide. There's no playbook for this. Um, but, but for, for people who are saying they're going, what, what do I need to do? Uh, yeah. uh, what, would you have some, some ideas, yeah, suggestions? Yeah. What comes next? Well, well, so the, I'm, so the first I'm thing taking I, notes right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. So, so here, so here's the first thing it is, first of all, to acknowledge that no, there are no best practices, right? We are in, somebody said we are in 1918, 1929 and 1968 all at the same time. Yeah. Right. We have a health pan global pandemic. We have an economic global recession and we have uprisings about social injustice yeah. Yeah. that are just going to continue on. And on top of that, in the United States, we also have political polarization and and churches are in decline. I mean, we're nobody's ever been there. So to acknowledge that there's no best practices, which means that you need to take seriously that this is a crisis you need to learn from. And so what Ronald Heifetz often talks about is think about a crisis as having two phases. It has the acute phase, like that's like when a person has a heart attack and is wheeled into an emergency room. When you are just disoriented and you're in the acute phase, what you just need is support. You just need everything gathers around you. It's about surviving it. And every time we have a crisis, we need to like come together and make sure we survive it. But if you've ever been in the, in the in the emergency room, you know that eventually, if you you know you're if you get, things go well, you eventually think, I just want out of here. I just want them to give me back my clothes and I want to go home. Yeah. And that's the mistake, because if what you do at that moment is just want to get out of there and go home, you will miss what he calls the adaptive stage, which is when you now can look at the underlying issues that we've not had the will to look at before. So, I, you know, so uh, March 5th, 13th, I came out of my last time I spoke before a group of people in the pandemic, flew home and had 15 speaking engagements cancel in the, over the weekend. And I thought, I don't even know what mm, I'm going to do with myself. Yeah. That's, that's like the next six months of my life, like about once mm. a week, you know, right? I had 95 webinars in 2020. I had wow. no idea. It was, I spoke to more people in 2020 than I did in 2019 and 2018 combined. And the entire time, what I did with people is I asked them, tell me what are the things being revealed in your church or in your organization through the pandemic? What's coming to the surface? What's like the, the underlying conditions that make COVID really, um, you know, attack a body? It's, it's those health conditions that are already there. What are the things that are already there? And it became really clear when you talk to people, like, we have a discipleship crisis. We don't have a church that can persevere the way we think about our heroes. We have a church that has been cultivated by celebrity and events and crowds and programs. We have a discipleship crisis. Um, we, others have said we have a community crisis. We, oh my gosh, people can change churches by clicking on a mouse. We're not even like we're, our people who are members of each other feel lonely and disconnected and divided. We have a leadership capacity crisis. You know, this may be less so in a place like Crew, but many churches and many organizations are built around too few people. Mm 
mm-hmm. to have the impact that they need in a distributed model. And many of us have said, we have a crisis where we do not know how to, how to think prophetically or talk prophetically in a time of crisis uh, because we have been just so cultivated by power and privilege. You know, it's MLK talks about this in Letter to the Birmingham Jail. Yeah. And so I think those crises give us an opportunity. So I would say is what you do in this moment is you ask yourself hard questions about what's been revealed in the pandemic that we now need to give ourselves to so that we can come out the other side thriving and not just surviving. Do you, do you think it's also a an opportunity for us to see the things that were always important that we had forgotten? Like it, it strips away so much, like a fire does, it purifies, oh. but also it, we begin to see, gosh, we spent a lot of time doing things. Like I know in our 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 local leaders in the city that I live in who, who run the student ministry here for us, um, you know, they said, yeah, we're not going back to a lot of the meetings we used to do oh. because we're we we spent so much time and energy just trying to put things together and at the end it wasn't producing what we needed it to anyway and so they're actually paving a new way forward Uh, a lot of it's been on zoom um Mm. now the moment this is for me i get frustrated when everyone kind of is like oh we're never going back to face to face and it's like i think we'll go back to face to face but zoom has its benefits exactly Um, and I think I think the moment that we can yeah. obviously will be face to face because especially yeah. in our business, right? It's it's yeah. relational. I mean, but all that to say, I, we're seeing some actually really cool thinking going on yeah. because it's kind of like, look, we now have this freedom. In the beginning, there's there seemed to me in the beginning of the pandemic, there seemed to me I don't know if you saw this, but there was this frenzied excitement of futurists trying to fill the space or anxiety almost with, okay, here's how it's going to be. Here's what you can do. And especially within our organization, we're a bunch of A types, entrepreneur type anyways. So everyone had their idea for, this is the way you can be reaching people during the pandemic and everything. And I have nothing against those ideas, but we actually chose to slow down and just take the first part of it and go, Hey, you know what? At the end of the day, we're not going to meet a lot of new people in this moment. Uh, at, at least at the first, let's concentrate on the people we have. Let's do a good job of shepherding them. And then let's use this to start thinking differently. Yeah. We don't, we don't have to do the things we did anymore. So let's, let's just use it. And it's actually been really productive, but did you see that quite a bit that people oh. were in this frenzied, like oh, yeah, anxiety yeah, yeah. producing, yeah. okay, I've got what I can do sort of thing. Yep. Yeah. So um, it's, so it's two parts. One is, you know, in the, in the entire model of adaptive leadership starts with, you don't start by trying to solve the problem. Mm. You, you, because yeah. if you do, what you will do is you will solve it with your old techniques that don't yep. work. So we spent a, so even like the whole, like, I mean, I, I actually do believe that we have learned a lot about things we can do over Zoom and online and with tech, digital technology. I think we learned a lot. Yeah, totally. But it's not going to be the, the, the silver bullet. Like, I mean, it's not. I mean, all the Zoom happy hours in the world are going to go away as soon as I can hug somebody, right? Yeah. But, there's a lot we can adapt and learn from. So the first thing you do, what it says is you start with observations. It's what Heifetz called getting on the balcony. You do, you slow down, you look, you observe, you learn, you get as many voices. Observations are built on quality, on, but they're built on quantity also. It's built on getting as many different voices and people looking at stuff. So when I have a conversation with my 78 year old mother who won't be on, who wouldn't get an iPhone because it was too complicated, but she was willing to get on Zoom because she wanted to see the faces of the people she loves. Mm-hmm. I start going, there are some technology we're gonna be able to use. Yeah. And you're right, nobody is going to go to a 
bad church meeting for three hours of the church. Now, if you can do it, the same meeting in 30 minutes on a Zoom conversation, yeah. no doubt. Right. Yeah. And no one's going to no one's going to fly me around the world for a two hour presentation that I can do from my living room when what's going to happen is we're going to have more high touch and high tech. Mm. And I'm not saying that as a prediction. I'm saying that's because we're already seeing it like yeah. we're already seeing we're experimenting with what do people want first? They want to be with their loved ones. Mm hmm. Right, they want to be with their loved ones. They that's the reason. So then you start recognizing our ability to observe, and then you make interpretations, and then you try some stuff. Interventions or experiments. You it's prototypes. You I say don't predict prototype. Don't try to figure out. In the 1990s, they used to say you know when Wayne Gretzky was a big star, you know, skate to where the puck is going. Well, we don't know where the puck is going. So instead. Yeah. Let's actually control. It's it's more like you know, tiki taka soccer, right? It's more like let's control the ball, work well right. together, and work our way down the down the field. It seems to me in in, in that scenario, there's going to be not just in the Christian world, but a lot of leaders in general who are going to kind of have to start facing some music because the busyness oh. in that. I mean, there are there's always busyness, but it seems to me and I, I found this principle in my own life sometimes i i would i would get almost I, there were periods where we would have to do a lot of traveling both garrick and i have had to do a lot of traveling and the, you get in this routine of oh i got to go to this place i got to go to this place and you start you you for you don't realize how you're almost medicating the problem by just staying busy yeah. So like, you know, it's, it's kind of like we got across this mountain and you kind of go, well, but if I run around for a while, at least I'll feel better. I'm going to go look for, you know, it's just this busyness that ends up taking yeah. place. And, yeah. and I wonder, I wonder how that's going to affect the church. That's where I think yeah. you're, 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 your point about spiritual directors, counselors, man, we mm -hmm. need those. Um, we yeah. kind of have a standing thing with our staff of go get a counselor. Pilgrimage. You need it. Yeah. yeah. Pilgrimage. There you go. Yeah. Garrick and I are huge pilgrimage, of, uh, pilgrimage uh, mm -hmm. through the Camino de Santiago. Um, yeah, exactly. Which think about that. The Camino is you walk. It is a long walk. Yep. Yep. A long right? walk. And, it is. And, and so the notion that we're going to get to the future by paddling harder when there's no water and racing around when we have no direction. That's how you die, actually. <laughs> like he like you know, that's that's actually how people die in the wilderness is they race yeah. around with no direction like yeah. mm -hmm. so there's a there's a way of thinking about slowing the process down and learning as you go and being humble to learn from other people in the journey that is going to change the way we think about things Amen. That actually, so Garrick and I got to walk the Camino together. Uh, mm -hmm. People who listen to this podcast have heard this ad nauseum now at this point, but mm -hmm. uh, he and I walked the last uh, 150 kilometers with oh, a group man. of guys. And uh, one of the guys on that, his name is uh, David Earl Adams, DE. And he was, at, we were walking it for his 50th birthday. And uh, mm. he had a, a phrase that he would say, there's no fast forward on the Camino. And mm. I carried that, I have carried that with me through this entire epidemic uh, mm. because there's no fast forward in Corona. We're, yeah. we're not, uh, when you're walking the Camino, you can only walk the step that's before you. You can't, yeah. you can't skip cities. You can't skip distances unless you cheat and take a taxi and you're no, yeah. no self-respecting pilgrim would do that. Right. Uh, but, but there's that reality of in, in this time and in adaptive leadership, I think you can't, 
you can't skip it. There's no fast forward. Right. It's right. just no. You you can only go as fast as you can learn. Yeah. Like that's it. That's like so. So you have to slow down enough to learn. And and as you learn more, you go faster. You understand. Like like what I've learned mostly after you know 15 years of doing this kind of leadership and now writing about it and coaching and working with over a hundred congregations and leaders is um, there's a bunch of stuff I know not to do. Like, I can just tell you, don't, don't do that. that. That doesn't work. I can tell you not, I can't all, I can usually never tell you what to do, but I can tell you it's going to require learning and it's going to require loss and it's going to require resilience. Mm. Those three things. So we might as well keep working on what can we learn? What can we let go of? And then where do we need God to keep transforming us so that we are wise and strong when in the face of resistance? Maybe this is, might be one of the, the last questions uh, that we'll get to here as we're closing up. But um, a lot of a lot of your book, um, of course, your experiences within the church. Uh, if you find yourself leading up, so you're a small piece on, on, in a big organization. So I'm not, this is not me masking, you know, my situation as, as far as crew goes, I am in a large organization, but if someone who listens to this finds themselves in a situation where they are more or less powerless to start an adaptive change process, how do you, how do you suggest one go about beginning the process of kind of saying, Hey, we, we need to stop canoeing the mountains. We need to get out we need to leave the canoes. How, how do you do that? How do you lead up in this situation? Yeah. Yeah. So, so I went from being 17 years, I was the senior pastor of a church to seven years of being a vice president <laughs> at a school. <laughs> and, um, and it was the this combination of both of those. And I worked for a president that I really respect. And, but there were a lot of times that I kept thinking, I'm not the president. Like, you know, mm-hmm. like there's stuff I have to learn from him, but there's things I would do different. And part of what I was really aware of was that, that what adaptive leadership says is leadership is not about your title. It's about the way you function. So, and, and this is another, you know, Jim Collins, who's kind of famous yeah. is a leadership guru. He often says leadership is not about a vision. Leadership is about seeing a problem and gathering people together and say, let's, let's figure out how to solve that. And so, so I always think that the best thing you can do is pay attention to the pain points, mm. pay attention to the places where there's pain. And for the church, the biggest mistake of most organizations is that we want to make things better for our people in our organization. So we want things to be better for our congregation rather than transforming our organization or our congregation for the people in the world that we're called to serve. Mm -hmm. So I would say, look, get out and pay attention to where there is pain in the world and where your capacity, your gifts can do it and start adapting toward that. Just start leading the learning and letting go of things that don't work. And so, you know, one of the things I did at Fuller for, I, I became the guy whose job was to figure out if less people want our graduate degrees, because seminaries are shrinking in enrollment, if less people want our graduate degrees, what else can we offer for the sake of the mission of God in the world? And we thought we can offer training and resources and scholarship to anybody anywhere whether they need initials after their name or they don't want to take on any more student loan debt. Like, so we developed, I became the founder of the Fuller Leadership Platform because we wanted, felt like there's a problem we could solve. Mm -hmm. But that meant a lot of internal adaptive work we had to do as a a seminary. And that's the change work. So keep, I always tell people, pay attention to the pain in your community. Think about the charism, the gifts, the strengths you bring toward it 
and then work through the adaptive resistance of the transformation of your own people to meet that need. And that, you know, um, that is usually the path forward. Now we can talk about sabotage and all the other stuff that happens, but it's continually paying attention to the changing world and how we need to be transformed to that changing world and start with your own team, your own group, your own self, if nothing else. Yeah. We have a friend who talks about cruciform evangelism. Yeah. It's a staff guy. And just the idea that um, in evangelism, it's not, it's not trying to get the message out, but, but rather entering people's lives uh, as Christ. Um, And so that, that goes to a lot about your point of how can I uh, be someone who's bringing value and healing and uh, grace into this world. That seems to me a better approach than our methods don't work anymore. How do we get our methods to work again? Yep. Because that becomes, doesn't that become a technological solution rather than, yeah. rather than an adaptive solution? Right. right. Yeah. The technical solution is I want to solve the problem for me. So right. I always, I mean, very often when I'm sitting with leaders after talking about this for a long time, it can feel really overwhelming. And somebody said to me once, like, why do we even do this? And my answer is it's, we do it for actually one reason, one reason only. And it's because Jesus set us up. Jesus said, Jesus was asked, what's the most important thing? And he gave two answers and not one. Yeah. So not only is bad, Jesus bad at math, he made it harder for ourselves. <laughs> yeah. He's asked most important and he gave two answers. And he said, as important as loving God, which is what everybody who came out of the Hebrew scriptures would have known, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As important as that, as important is to love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. So I said, leadership is built on one thing. It is seeing the need of our neighbor and in love, changing ourselves to take the love of God to that neighbor. That's what adaptation is. The core, deepest core value of my life is that I've been loved by God and the God who loves me says, don't just look at me. Now look at them. Now go in my name to them. And whatever it takes for you to adapt without losing your love for me is what you do. Like, go do that. Yeah. And that's the big why. That's the reason we exist. It's we exist because we love our neighbor. That and, and, that is and gold. we have yeah, that is gold. And we have we have to define our mission within that framework. And if we haven't yeah. defined our mission within that framework, then we need to go back and redefine our mission, wouldn't yeah. you say? Because oh yeah, yeah. Um, then it's just about the success of the organization or the organization right. continuing to live when yeah. it's lost its yeah. purpose. Yeah, I had a I had a guy from Silicon Valley look at me and say, you know, you know I, these entrepreneurs, guys from companies you would know. One of them looked at me and said, you know, nobody cares <laughs> if your institution survives. <laughs> nobody cares. Yeah. What they care about is whether your institution cares about them. So yeah. that's what go demonstrate yeah. that you care about them. Yeah. And when the Silicon Valley guy has to remind, you know, the theology yeah. professor <laughs> about the love of neighbor, it's a bad day for the theology professor. Oh but, man, yeah. I've had so many I was I could go on for hours, but how many times is, as yeah. a non-believer reminded me of how much mm-hmm. I'm not like Jesus and how much they understand things a little bit better. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, Todd, you have been more than gracious and given us uh, an ample amount of time yeah, here. I, I feel like we just scratched the surface, but uh, there's some gold in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you, For those listening, again, dupree.org slash church is the URL where you need to go to find Todd and his work. Um, Todd, thank you so much. Uh, such a blessing. Thank you for everything you're doing for uh, the kingdom. Uh, man, this, 
I don't, I don't want to end it. I'm just going to be honest, but we're going to end it. <laughs> thank you again. We, yeah, we really you, appreciate it. Great. My, pl- my pleasure. Thank you.